0: following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. The Book of Jude. And today we're going to talk about a phrase that Jude uses called the Way of Cain. Here's where he mentions it it's in verse 11 Woe to them, so that them is the false teachers. The first 10 verses of the book of jude have been laying out there's a problem in that church false teachers were working their way in they were uh, corrupting how people were living and they were corrupting the teaching of who jesus was and we spent some time in previous weeks they were doing analogies to the children of israel and to the fallen angels and to sodom and gomorrah and the writer of jude just keeps right on going they've taken the way of cain They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So, my initial thought was to try to look at all three of these on one Sunday, and then it took about 15 minutes to figure out there was no way that was going to happen. So, we're going to go through one at a time, the way of Cain, and then we'll visit Balaam, and we'll visit Korah. So, the story of the way of Cain, it, it is a story of a warning, But also, as I've been reading up just on the story of Cain and Abel, I'm realizing it's also a story that reveals the way of life. We tend to think of it as a judgment story, and it is. Cain did something wrong, and he received a judgment for it. And yet, there is a revelation of who God is in the midst of that story that offers the promise and the hope of the way of life. So what I want to do first is go through just the story of Cain and Abel. Then we're going to apply it to how the writer of Jude is applying it to the teachers at that time, and then I want to talk about what we see of God in this story. So just know, as I was reading through, studying up for this, I was reading different commentaries, but also I discovered that... Uh, The history of Judaism is full of a ton of discussion about the Cain and Abel story because the Bible's pretty sparse, actually, on the details. There's a lot of the way the story is written that gives space to try to fill in the blanks. And the rabbis love to do that. They spent... Uh, I don't know how much time, a lot of time talking about Cain and Abel because they knew the story was there for us to learn from, and they knew that there was something about the framework of the story that was meant to be instructive, but they weren't quite sure what it was, and so they wrestled with it. For centuries, they wrestled with it. So what I'm pulling from are traditional biblical commentaries and also how the Jewish people throughout the history of their understanding of this story have tried to make sense of some of the things that are going Going on. So, we read about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, and he seems to actually be the twin brother of Abel. If nothing else, they're brothers for sure, uh, but the text suggests that they're twins. Think Jacob and Esau, and I'm going to mention this more as we go through this because there's a lot of parallels between Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau. So Cain follows in his father's footsteps. That's what a firstborn's son does. By the way, I keep looking over here. Just the way this is configured, it looks like there's somebody there. So if you wonder why I keep gazing off into the distance, it's a trick of geography. Uh, So I'm going to have to fix that next week. All right, so Cain is a firstborn. And as firstborns did, he followed in his father's footsteps. He was a farmer. Abel tends flocks. Now, at this point already, the rabbis begin to speculate, okay, there's some tension here. Oldest son follows in his father's footsteps. You might even think, by the way, of the parable of the two brothers with the prodigal son as we talk through this. Oldest son's here, he gets the the rights of the firstborn that was already entrenched in those societies. He's doing what dad did, awesome. Here comes Abel, he he doesn't follow in those footsteps. He chooses something different. So already the suggestion is we see some tension to begin to build in the story. Their speculation went further. They might have been fighting over women, they might have been fighting over land, but they were pretty confident that Abel was pushing to get what Cain had. And it doesn't help that Cain's name means gotten. So in Genesis 3, God had promised Adam and Eve, listen, I'm going to give you children. And from your children, there's going to be someone who's going to crush the serpent's head. Well, when Cain is born, Eve names him Cain gotten because she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And the idea is that Eve believes this is the one who will crush that darn serpent's head. Well, Then there's Abel. And Abel's name means vanity or vain or meaningless. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you hear the phrase over and over meaningless, says the preacher, everything is meaningless. That word and the word for Abel are basically the same word. <laughs> so here's Cain, like, awesome, God's promise, he's going to crush the serpent. And then right away, here's Abel, eh, whatever. And the rabbis assumed that names carried some kind of meaning. It said something about the character of people and the purpose of people, for sure. And so, right off the bat, you have this tension of the story just from the names. Abel is unimportant and kind of meaningless and maybe a little vain and empty. But Cain, Cain's the chosen one. So, once again, think Jacob and Esau. Uh, as you think about the dynamics between the brothers so the story picks up in genesis when Cain and Abel both brings offerings to the lord Cain brings uh, the the fruit of the ground or the produce of the ground Abel brings animals from his flock picking up in genesis 4 verse 3 in the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the lord And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Uh, We might think of fat as gross now. We cut it off of stuff we eat as an offering. This was primo. The Lord looked with favor, favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Notice So far in this text, it doesn't tell us why God liked Abel's offering but not Cain's. We read in the book of Hebrews that Abel's was offered in faith and Cain's was not. So what does that mean? What does it mean to offer something in faith? As best I can tell from reading all the discussion about this, it really just means Abel followed directions, Like, he believed God had the authority to determine the path of life for him and determine how he should be worshipped. In some ways, this reflects what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. And as the story unfolds, you're also going to see how this story mirrors the story of the fall with Adam and Eve. But the idea there was the serpent comes to Eve and Adam and says, Really? You're going to let God decide what you do? Why don't you decide what you want to do? And this offering in faith seems to mean Abel, he said, yeah, God can tell me what to do. And he does it. But Cain follows in the footsteps of his parents and says, nah, I I don't think God can tell me what to do. Um, I'll do it. And in fact, certain translations that are trying to wrestle with the way Hebrew words are used would say that God specifically says to Cain, you didn't divide your offering correctly. It it seems that what Cain brought was okay to bring, but the way in which he offered it was on his terms rather than God's terms. So what does it mean to not divide something correctly? If you go to the Mosaic law, when the people brought the offering to the temple, the food was for the priests. Though they offered it to God, it was a way in which the priests were supported, so it wasn't wasted. I mean, there were some things that were burned, but everything that was left went to the priest. And if tradition is true... This would seem to suggest that the offerings Cain and Abel were bringing, they were to God, but they were probably divided amongst others. They supported each other. And Cain doesn't want to do this like God instructed, or at least that's what the rabbis speculated. And then the text also says he chose some of his crop. Abel brings the best. Cain doesn't bring the best. He just brings some. And that's what God explains to Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, or like I said, some commentaries will say, uh, if you rightly divided it, will you not be accepted, or will your countenance not be lifted up? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. By the way, that's a great ancient Near East image. The word there for sin, uh, borrowed from a Mesopotamian word that had to do with what they called doorway demons, like this there's this demon crouching outside your doorway. And if you step outside, it's going to ambush you. And that seems to be the image here. Listen, if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. A demon is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so this paragraph is trickier than it seems. Sin desires to have you, um, but you, you uh, can rule over it. The problem here with the translation is it's not clear if this desiring to have you and you ruling over it is the sin or if it's able. And actually, it seems to be a a, a compelling argument that what God is actually telling Cain here is, listen, sin is crouching at your door. You need to get your countenance up or it's going to waylay you. And then says, your brother desires to have you, but you must rule over him. Does that phrase sound familiar at all? That's from Genesis 3. Part of the curse and the relationship between Adam and Eve, um, your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. That was part of the curse. It's the exact same line, which would seem to suggest there's a relational dynamic going, over here, or going on here. In fact, if you read the, the Brenton Septuagint translation, it's going to translate the verse this way. Hast thou not sinned, if thou hast brought it rightly, but not rightly divided it? In other words, you brought the right thing, but you didn't offer it like I ask. Be still. To thee shall be his submission that would be Abel, and thou shalt rule over him. And the idea is, is this. The, this is where the rabbis would look at this and go, okay, we think like Jacob and Esau, Abel was gunning for Cain's rights of the firstborn." And God says to Cain, to listen, um, first of all, do what is right. Sin is crouching at your door. It's coming for you. Uh, and then referencing this tension, uh, yeah, Abel desires to knock you out of your place. But be patient. Be faithful. You'll be okay. Now, I... I think I prefer that second reading because it taps into the relational dynamics that we see in Genesis three. It's not a hill I'm going to die on because either way, uh, the point is that Cain is on a path where he's either going to be mastered by sin or mastered by his brother. And either way, God says, uh, listen, lift up your face. It doesn't have to be this way. Your history isn't your destiny. Just do what's right. Right? So Cain and Abel go into the plane and they have a conversation. Once again, this is an odd paragraph to try to translate. Because the Bible doesn't record what they say. In fact, there's a literary blank there that baffled the rabbis. So if you can go to the next slide. You'll, your Bible will probably phrase this one of three different ways. Either that... Cain told his brother, which suggests Cain told his brother about his conversation with God. And then it will translate it as, and it came to pass that Cain killed Abel. Your translation might say, so Cain spoke to his brother. And the implication of that is they had a conversation to try to uh, work out whatever tension was between them. And then it'll typically follow with, and then it came to pass. And the and it came to pass phrase is almost always meaning over a long period of time, eventually Cain killed Abel. But your translation might say, so Cain said to his brother, let's go into the field. Uh, Just so you know, let's go into the field is a later addition because they knew there was a conversation that was supposed to be there, and since the next line was while they were in the field they're like okay he must have said to him let's go into the field so while they were in the field and and so I know I keep referencing the rabbis but I was just fascinated by reading about this this week there was a whole lot of discussion about what were they talking about what happened in this conversation And that's where they would go, okay, I think it might have been this, it might have been this. It certainly had something to do with the offering because Cain was very angry that Abel's was accepted and his wasn't. But something is going on here. And one of the fascinating things to me that I was not aware of, and I'm 51 years old and I've grown up in the church, is that in Jewish tradition, Abel is not necessarily seen as a great guy. In fact, in all of these conversations and all of these tensions, so once again, think Jacob and Esau. Um, Think the parable of the two brothers, the one with the prodigal son. It wasn't as if one is pristine and just admirable in every way and the other is terrible. It's like they're bringing stuff that's clashing. And there was something about this clash, whatever the conversation was, that eventually this explodes into... And it came to pass that Cain kills Abel. And here the parallels between Genesis 3 and 4 become even more clear. God questions Cain just as he questioned Adam. He said to Adam after his sin, what have you done? And he says to Cain, where is Abel? Where's your brother? So God gives him a chance to come clean. Just notice this. It's like when our kids do something wrong and we're like, hey, what happened to the cat's tail? And you give them a chance to go, <laughs> I cut it off, Dad. That didn't really happen in my house. Uh, just an example. You give them a chance to own it. And if they own it, odds are really good what follows after that is going to be very different than if they go, uh, he did it. And you find out later that's a lie. All right. That's two different trajectories. And it seems as if God is saying here to Abel, Abel, or Cain, Cain, where's where's your brother? Where's Abel? And Cain has a choice now. Cain can go, well, I killed him. And then I don't know where the story would go because that's not what he says. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The implication, by the way, is yes, in fact, you are. But there is a Jewish parable that goes like this. A thief who stole things in the night and was not caught. Or sorry, a thief stole things in the night and was not caught. In the morning, the gatekeeper caught him. And he said to the thief, why did you steal those things? And the thief said, well, I'm a thief. And I didn't let down my profession. But you, your profession is to guard the gate. Why did you let down your profession? And now you ask me this. Do you get that cool blame shifting like, I actually did my job. You're the one who didn't do your job. How dare you call me out on this? And this really is what Cain is doing. Cain's blaming God. And I don't want to go into all the Hebrew of this, but he's basically saying, listen, you're the shepherd of that shepherd. You're the guardian. You're the one who was supposed to be watching out for him. He's your responsibility. Have you heard this before? This is Adam. Uh, The woman you gave me gave me the apple. And now here's Cain. Uh, You're the shepherd of that shepherd. You allowed it. You watched it happen and didn't stop it. So Cain, rather than confessing, he becomes belligerent and he becomes insulting. And so God explains how the consequences are going to work. So in Genesis 3, the serpent was cursed in Genesis 4, Cain is cursed. So here you see, by the way, Cain, who Eve thought was the man God sent to crush the serpent's head, he's actually continuing the line of the serpent spiritually. So like the serpent was cursed, Cain is cursed. So the ground that Cain loved has soaked up the blood of his brother. So Cain sows death into a ground that's meant to give life. And so God says, okay, you want to sow death? You'll reap death. The ground won't give you life anymore. And, and now because of that, Cain can't farm. And also, he killed a family member. And so God goes, uh, okay, you don't want your family? You'll wander. And this could mean he's a vagrant. The Bible also talks about the land of Nod where he goes to. Nod means wandering. So, I don't know if God's saying, why don't you go to the land of wandering, the land of Nod, or if maybe Cain is the one who founded the land of Nod, either case, you are unhooked from the things that were meant to bring you stability because you've disrupted all of them. In fact, if you see now Cain's legacy, you'll see, and I'm not going to read the passage, but as you read through his descendants, they wander further and further and further away from God. This is his legacy. So, now Cain plays the martyr. He says, What if people kill me? Uh, says the man who just killed another man. He says, This is more than I can bear. And I think basically saying, What if I get what I deserve? But here we see a God who is rich in mercy. He gives him something to cover his vulnerability. Does that sound familiar? He did that with Adam and Eve. He gave them something to cover their vulnerability. Only this time, it's a mark of some sort some sort, instead of the clothes that he gave Adam and Eve. God says, I'll put a mark on you so that people know that I do not give them permission to kill him. If they kill you, uh, you'll be avenged sevenfold, or some translations would say seven generations of judgment will follow. Uh, nobody knows what that mark is but there was something distinctive that God said, all right, it'll be clear to others. I did not sentence you to death, so they don't get permission to sentence you to death either. So there is no scripture that sheds any hope on the way of Cain. The New Testament mentions him twice, and in both instances, he's held up as a warning and nothing else. His last descendant recorded in Genesis is a dude named Lamech, who is so violent that the only words of his that are recorded in Scripture are called the song of the sword. By the way, he's the seventh generation from Cain. I don't know if we should see something about this seven-generation thing or not, but I think it's interesting. And in fact, Cain's line becomes so bad that it absorbs the line of Seth. So after Abel is killed, Adam and Eve have another child, Seth, and Seth becomes the first one in the line of promise. And if you track Seth's descendants, this is Noah and then Abraham, right? So Seth is the line of the serpent crusher. But Cain, the line of the serpent, his line is so convincing, so powerful, so devious and disruptive. but by the time you get to the flood, they have absorbed all of Seth's line except for one. Noah is the remaining righteous man in the world. So, this is the way of Cain. And Jude says, this is the way of the false teachers. So, just some bullet points of what we covered so far. It starts with a rebellious heart clothed by religious ritual. Cain was, uh, he, he did the service to God. The implication of the story seems to be he's done sacrifices before. This wasn't the first time. I mean, God says, don't you know that if you do it right, It's fine. So, the first thing you see is a rebellious heart. It's clothed with religious rituals. From those on the outside looking at them, everything looks good. But in Cain's case, the heart was corrupt. And you see this now because worship, and in this case obedience, is on his own terms. And so, for false teachers, worship will be on their terms. They're not interested in what God says to do in a response of worship. They want to do it the way they want to do it and then they'll disdain those who worship rightly. Cain was angry at Abel. That's irrational. Abel simply did what God asked. Good for Abel. Cain didn't. All right, that doesn't make Abel worthy of your anger, but it's what I said. It's not rational. It's just a disdain of those who worship rightly. And then there's a destruction of others. In the case of Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel But the Bible uses other language of how we can bring spiritual life and death to people, or how false teachers can shipwreck the faith of other people. So you still see it moves to the destruction of others. And then God challenges him, and you see an unrepentant rebellion at God's correction. And God gives, and we're going to come back to this later, God gives chances at every time Cain says, No, thank you. And then you see resentment at the consequences of sin How dare I sow what I reap? And a lack of appreciation of God's ongoing mercy. And in a little bit, we'll just see God offers it again and again. And then finally, a legacy of corruption. Uh, It reminds me of the passages where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And he'll say things like, you're making disciples of hell. That's a legacy of corruption. And if you would go back through that list, you'll probably think of times Jesus said to the Pharisees some very specific things that seem to align with this. So, if you read the book of Jude, that one chapter, and we've read it a couple times at the beginning of this series, I don't have time to read the whole thing again this morning, but you're going to see the way of Cain show up over and over in the description of what the false teachers are like. So, God wants obedience. Nah, they're not interested in obeying God. God wants our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, What about just parts of our bodies, but not all the parts? God wants our money. They're taking money. God wants humility not a chance. He wants gratitude. They're grumbling. God wants us to respect authority. No, so the false teachers, I'm the authority. God wants me to honor people. False teachers go, I'm I'm slandering people. It's clear in the text. And then God wants his shepherd to feed others, but these false teachers, they are just taking, taking, taking from the people they're supposed to be giving to. I think that's the way of Cain. And one of Jude's warning is this is leading you to your destruction, the legacy of corruption is going to play out. Okay, so Jude was written for our guidance. So for me as a pastor, one of the things I see when I read this passage is, oh, okay, Anthony, you got to be serious about what it means to be in the service of Christ. If that list I just gave captures the way of Cain, oh, man, I can't just clothe my life in religious rituals while I have a rebellious heart. I'm not allowed to be obedient or worship on my own terms, um, I can't be angry if it looks like God's blessing other people in a way he's not blessing me. Uh, I have to repent at God's correction. I can go through this whole list and go, okay, as, as a pastor, God forbid that I follow in the way of Cain and in the way of these false teachers. I bring a legacy of, of corruption or destruction to the congregation. But I think for you as members of the congregation, in some ways, it's a punch list of responsibility for those who are in spiritual leadership in your lives. It's for you to look at this list and go, okay, does this characterize those whose leadership I'm under? So that includes me, but that includes other people in this church. And if you see something and you go, I think this is starting to look like the way of Cain that I think you have a biblical responsibility to pray for us and confront us so that godly sorrow brings repentance. And if that doesn't happen, then you got to run. you got to run. If your spiritual leadership is following in the way of Cain, because it's going to lead you toward destruction. So, so this is a sobering passage for me <laughs> because, for one, it reminds me of my responsibility. But for number two, I have to put myself and others in the church out there to you and say, the Bible is here For your instruction. If you start to see that things are drifting, you need to come to us. Right? Jude is written for our good and ultimately for God's glory. So I just want to close here with how we see the grace of God in this story. First of all, God says to Cain, Lift up your face. I love this. After Cain brings this rebellious, wrong sacrifice, God doesn't go, boom! I've been reading Princess Bride this week, boo. God doesn't do that to Cain. He goes, Cain, lift up your face. I mean, God said, yeah, Cain, that sacrifice is not going to work. And Cain's like, God says, oh, no, 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 that's not the response. Lift up your face. Have any of you seen this video going around? It's these two college basketball players. And one of the guys is really tall. (laughs) No. One of the guys is really tall, and he's clearly just made a mistake, and he's walking down the court like this. I don't, and there's this little guard, like half his size, next to him, and as they're both walking down the court side by side, this little guard reaches over, and he puts his hand under his chin, and he pushes his face up, and they keep on walking. I think that's the idea here, that God says to Cain, Cain, lift up your face. I didn't. I didn't confront you on your bad sacrifice to knock you out of the race. I'm for you. Lift up your face. And he warns him, if you keep your face down, sin's going to get you, man. Sin will get you. What does David say in the Psalms? I lift up my eyes to the hills where my help comes from, which is the Lord who made heaven and earth. God says to Cain, lift up your face. Lift up your countenance. See, we get to try again when we fail in the kingdom of God. I'd never really thought about that in this story before because I usually just think about how Cain blew it. But the first thing God says to Cain is try again. Try again. You know how to do this. Lift up your face. And the second thing is that God will give us a chance to own our sin. When he says to Cain, where's Abel? I mean, we don't know how the story would have gone if Cain said, yeah, I killed him. We don't know how that would have gone, but it sure looks like God is giving him a chance to confess, to repent. Repentance is always an option in the kingdom of God. When God says, What have you done? Whether that's through someone confronting you, or you're reading scripture, or you're in prayer and the Holy Spirit's convicting you, and you hear that voice of God go, What have you done? Well, okay, we can shrug our shoulders and point at someone else. Or we can go, oh, what, you mean, what have you allowed like Cain did? We can do that. Or we can do like David said in Psalm 51. I have done what is evil in your sight. You're proved right when you speak, and you're justified when you judge. It's a hard thing to acknowledge. But, but God is going to look at the sacrifice of our lives and go, sometimes he's going to have to say, oh, no, that wasn't a good sacrifice at all. Now lift up your face. And now acknowledge it. Uh, and we get to say, oh, you're right. You're justified when you judge me that way. God gives us a chance to own our sin and repent. The third thing is that we see a promise of the big picture here, and that's God's promises and purposes will not be thwarted. So when Moses is writing or compiling the book of Genesis, keep in mind, apparently that's when the Israelites were between their their deliverance from Egypt and their arrival in the promised land. And if you remember right, the people are grumbling like, I don't think the promise is going to happen. This is taking forever, and we've got all these problems. And so one of the things you see throughout the Old Testament over and over are stories where it looks like God's promise has been thwarted, but it's not. God always fulfilled his purposes and his promises. So look at Cain and Abel. Cain was the son that was gotten apparently to crush the head of the serpent, and then instead he crushes his brother. (sighs) That was supposed to be God's plan. Oh, no, God has Seth. God had a plan. The purposes of God will not be thwarted. And this is where I think, once again, for the, the people, is lift up your face to the children of Israel. You're, now you're looking down. Now you're grumbling and complaining, and sin is going to crouch at your door. Uh, lift up your face. Look at the God who is leading you and taking care of you. And then finally, there's a messianic connection. And that is that the spilled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that's from Hebrews twelve twenty four. That even though this story is a sobering story of how sin leads to violence, and the, and the Bible is full of different images of where the blood is crying out to God. It's the blood of the martyrs. It's the blood of innocent victims. If you get to Revelation, when blood is spilled that shouldn't be spilled, it cries out to God for, for what? Justice for vengeance, yeah. But then you see that the blood of Christ, also an innocent victim's blood spilled into the ground, does something different. And here I'm going to quote from Charles Spurgeon to wrap this up. This is from a sermon he gave. There is a cry heard in heaven. The angels are astonished. They rise up from their golden seats and they inquire, what is that cry? And God looketh upon them and he saith... It is the cry of blood. A man has been slain by his fellow. A brother, by him who came from the bowels of the selfsame mother, has been murdered in cold blood through malice. One of my saints has been murdered, and here he comes. And then the cry was heard, loud and clear and strong, and thus it spoke, revenge, revenge, revenge. And now, beloved, just contrast with this, the blood of Christ. That is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He hangs upon a tree. He is murdered, murdered by his own brethren. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but his own led him out to death. He bleeds, he dies, and then is heard a cry in heaven. The astonished angels again start from their seats, and they say, what is this? What is this cry we hear? And the mighty maker answers yet again, it is the cry of blood is the cry of the blood of my only begotten and well-beloved son and God uprising from his throne looks down from heaven and listens to the cry and what is that cry it's not revenge but the voice crieth mercy 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 did you not hear it it said father forgive them they know not what they do And herein, the blood of Christ speaks better things than that of Abel, for Abel's blood said revenge and made the sword of God start from its scabbard. But Christ's blood cried mercy and sent the sword back again and bade it sleep forever. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.